Last week I spoke about the practice of non-harming as at the center of our ethical practice. And I explored, we explored that practice and its um, importance in uh, traditional Buddhist ways of practicing, some ways and some reasons why it's not as clearly practiced in what's developed in Western Buddhism, and pointed to five ways of practicing non-harming, five fundamental ways of practicing non-harming. And today, what I want to do is to continue that exploration and that pointing to ways of practicing. I want to do it in a special 4th of July way. (laughs) And to point towards deepening that practice of non-harming by giving 10 further ways of deepening that practice of non-harming. And I do not urge you to do all 10 at all. That would be too much. So I'm hoping that one or two really resonate with you and you want to follow up on this. And I'm pointing to this centrality of ethical practice on the 4th of July. And I wanted to just say a few, a few words about that. Um, the 4th of July followed the uh, Declaration of Independence. And the words were offered, you know, in the Declaration of Independence, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And at once that was both very powerful from an evolutionary point of view, moving away in the European context from rule by kings and queens and monarchy and so forth, And it was also, right from the beginning, contradictory or emblematic of whatever we call it, a a lie, a core contradiction that has been something that all of us have had to grapple with and that the country's had to grapple with from the beginning. And I think that there's been, there have been at times this contradiction has been heightened. And the contradiction, you know, um, was really clear to me. I, as I think I mentioned last week, I was last month in Washington, D.C. and went uh, twice to the new Museum of African American History and Culture and most of its history. And it was really clear, I mean, it's just jumped up just how people, essentially the uh, political leaders, just uh, you know, had to in some way deal with that underlying contradiction of having uh, slavery at the same time that they could have a document like that, right? And you know, one of the interesting things I found you know, that I didn't know so well was that in the original Declaration of Independence, drafted by Jefferson, there actually was a passage, um, I think, I don't remember so clearly, I think it was supporting slave auctions in the Declaration of Independence. It was some passage that was, that was supporting slavery. And Jefferson's fellow conveners, apparently seeing the contradiction as being too blatant, took it out but it was in the first draft, right? And you see, you know, the museum makes it really clear that, you know, leader after leader, politician after politician, essentially uh, grappled with that contradiction. I would say betrayed a lack of moral integrity 
generation after generation, right? You could see that. They were just having all sorts of uh, ways of trying to justify what was unjustifiable, right? And you can see that. And I think that that um, tension and contradiction is obviously still with us. It's been there, you know, in some ways it's been there through history. And so periodically, from time to time, there's a major moral crisis in this country. And I think we're in such a time right now. And so that's part of how I want to frame this talk because the heart of Buddhist practice and maybe of all forms of ethics or morality is non-harming, which is understood on the one side as refraining from certain kinds of behaviors and actions, and on the other side as meaning offering care, compassion, kindness. And I'll bring that out further, that the, the ethical guideline about non-harming is expressed negatively, but it's always historically been understood positively as well. And so I think, you know, just seeing the history and reflecting on that on the 4th of July, it's helpful to see that. You can listen to the beautiful words, you know, um, Lincoln, you know, some, what, 70 years, 80 years later, well, four score and seven years later. (laughs) He said, four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent, a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. So he's saying again and acting in some ways. And, uh, you know, and, you know, Susan Anthony, a little while later, said, men, their rights and nothing more. Women, their rights and nothing less. And, of course, that didn't come through, what, till 1920, right? And so... Um, the, the poet Walt Whitman had this uh, beautiful line, 1871. Uh, he said, We have frequently printed the word democracy, yet I cannot too often repeat that it is a word, the real gist of which still sleeps, quite unawakened. It is a great word whose history, I suppose, remains unwritten because that history has yet to be enacted. 1871. And then maybe one last passage. Some of you know the famous poem by Langston Hughes where he, he, he says, Oh, let America be America again, the land that never has been yet and yet must be the land where every man is free. And then at the end he says, Oh, yes, I say it plain. America never was America to me. And yet I swear this oath, America will be. So there's, in all of those figures, some understanding of the tension, sometimes even the moral crisis, and a recommitment to have, we might say, moral integrity, ethical integrity. And that's really also at the heart of Buddhist practice. And so I want to explore the Buddhist perspective, I'll do that by partly reviewing what we looked at last time and then taking us further. And I also, I may want to see how many of you last week did those practices of non-harming diligently who were here last time? Define diligently. diligently. Remembered it at least once. (laughs) Okay. Okay. You get an easy definition of diligent today. Okay. Okay. So we remember that the, uh, the core of Buddhist training is often expressed in three ways. There's training in uh, ethics. Again, usually translated ethics, morality, the sense of um, integrity. There's a second area, training in meditation. And there's a third area of training in wisdom. And that's always been the framework for 2,600 years. And, and yet in Western Buddhism, there's been this really this focus on uh, meditation, particularly in insight meditation, the kind of practice we do here. 
In the Asian context, those three forms were quite, you know, quite present. We have tended to focus on meditation as if that's it. And so, you know, even talks on the ethical dimension of practice are not so common. And there's been that focus on meditation. I, I, again, I can understand why it's there in large part because many of the contemplative dimensions of Western religious spiritual traditions have been somewhat marginalized. When you think of Christianity, Judaism, Islam, the contemplative dimensions, you'd have to sometimes look a long way to find them. You know, and it's not always easy, right? You'd have to go to Thomas Merton's monastery in Kentucky, you know, the Trappist monastery there, or find some Sufi teacher or some teacher of Kabbalah. Not easy to find that really being a living tradition. Certainly not there in the mainstream churches, synagogues, and mosques. So I think that's probably the core reason. Um, Plus, I think in our context, we've emphasized so much uh, retreats, and formal practice, so that often when we ask, how is your practice going, people won't necessarily think of their ethical practice, they'll think of the daily meditation, right? And I think that's off in some ways, right? It's not fully integrated, and so part of the motivation here is to have a a better rounded sense of of practice. In the traditional context, uh, ethical practice for monks and nuns was guided by over 200 guidelines, that one followed. For lay people, five. <laughs> so easier. And they're familiar to many of us. They're all, in some sense, varied, some non-harming. The first guideline is to not kill, sometimes generalized not to harm. The second guideline, not to take that which is not given, not to steal. The third through the fifth, being very careful with energies which sometimes and often cause harm. Sexuality, speech, and uh, intoxicants. And so um, those, those are the guidelines. As I mentioned, they really could be understood also as developing positive qualities. So non-harming is also, as I mentioned, about developing care, compassion, kindness. Not taking that which is not given is linked with generosity, and also care for others. Same thing with the third through the fifth. They're expressed negatively in one way, not to do this, but they also can be understood as reflecting uh, care for others, respect, and so forth. The teachings to not to harm others, not to harm oneself, are completely central in tradition, from the Buddha. One who is virtuous and wise shines forth like a blazing fire. 2,600 years ago. Not to commit evil, but to practice all good, to keep the heart pure. This is the teaching of the Buddha. And you can hear in those quotations how actually the integration of whatever we call it, goodness, being ethical, deep meditation, and wisdom is what's being pointed to, that they all actually become interconnected. That as one develops further in one's practice, the sense of ethics, the sense of goodness, becomes more and more integrated, not even something one has to think about so much. It's more intuitive how one is. It's more quality of one's being, maybe we might say, than one's doing. The ethical guidelines are also very much understood as guidelines for training, meaning that we don't see them so much as rules that we're supposed to follow, and that if we don't follow them, we'll be punished or you go against non-harming and lightning comes down and strikes you, or at least you have bad karma and choose the wrong line at the supermarket. (laughs) Um, And so they're rather understood really as training guidelines. That is, we're always in a sense falling short. That's crucial. 
You know, and so that we, we train in them, we fall short, and then we recommit, and we keep going with them. And it's understood that we would always fall short. Not always, but sometimes fall short, I should say. And we, we, uh, we work with the precepts in that way. <clears throat> From the Buddha, one must not hate any being and cannot kill a living being even in thought. So this is focusing more on non-harming. Abandoning the onslaught on breathing beings when abstains from this without stick or sword, scrupulous, compassionate, trembling for the welfare of all living beings. And so you can start to see that this would be a basis not just for one's own face-to-face behavior, but also... Uh, really a way of understanding the entirety of one's life. And there, you know, there are passages from the early texts which I interpret as bringing out also the social dimension. You know, and I, I think I read this last time from, again, 2,600 years ago. Let one not destroy life nor cause others to destroy life and also not approve of others killing. So there, that, I interpret that as social. One also should not approve of others. Let one not cause another to harm, nor approve of it. You know, and you know, there's been an updated version of that. Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese teacher, says, I vow to cultivate compassion and learn ways to protect the lives of people, animals, plants, and minerals. I am determined not to kill. And then he says, I am determined not to let others kill, not to condone any act of killing in the world in my thinking and in my way of life. So some have attempted to broaden that sense of non-harming. If we take that as a precept, we also are really required in that understanding to respond to any harming going on in the world, particularly that which we have some responsibility for, such as being citizens, where there's harming being conducted by one's own government. Yeah, but, but also more broadly. This is from the uh, Thai teacher and writer uh, Sulak Sivaraksha. We must look at the sales of arms and challenge these structures which are responsible. Killing permeates our modern way of life. Wars, racial conflicts, breeding animals to serve human markets using harmful insecticides. How can we resist this and create a nonviolent society? How can the first precept about non-harming be used to shape a politically just and merciful world? So many in the contemporary world want to take that principle of non-harming as a kind of a North Star, not just in one's face-to-face behavior, but in the, all the parts of one's life. So last time I gave five ways of practicing, which are still good. I'm going to give 10 further ways, of, or 10 ways of deepening it. I'm not saying... You've graduated from those first five. Um, they're, they're still very much uh, helpful. So the first way of working with the precept is to uh, work with the intention to cultivate non-harming day by day. Intention is a very crucial part of our practice. To remember, that might be to put the intention not to harm on your refrigerator. on your, you know, dashboard. Remember it once or twice or three times a day, especially in a training period. You take it, because I'm suggesting, think of a training period of a week and do something like this every day. Then maybe say, I want to do it another week and have that kind of focus for a week. Secondly, let that guide one's outer behavior. Let the... uh, Intention not to harm be with you during the day. A third way to practice it is that is connected with that sense that we sometimes fall short. It's to use mindfulness to really track what's going on in the mind, body, and heart when you feel yourself, when I feel myself either uh, violating the precept or in some murky area where I may be violating the precept. 
It's like one of my good friends um, often says, I'm not sure if what I'm about to say is following the precept about skillful speech, but here goes. <laughs> so there was some awareness of being in that murky area. So that's the third area, using mindfulness. Like, what's my motivation when I'm speaking harshly to another, harmfully in a way to another? What's going on inside? It's one of the powerful ways we can use mindfulness. What's my motivation? What's going on? And we can use those moments of seeming to go against non-harming, be like uh, wake-up calls, tripwires that let you say, oh, now it's time to be aware. A fourth way to practice that I gave last time is to regularly practice a heart practice that brings about more compassion or kindness. So it would be to have loving kindness be a regular practice. One does it every day. In some ways, one tries to bring that sense of kindness more into your life. Again, I really suggest doing something like this for a week, not taking on one of these um, ways of practicing indefinitely, but do it for a week and really stay with it. And then maybe you want to continue. That's a skillful way, I think, of developing this. (laughs) And then the last way was attending in some way to the social dimension. You know, I think when I was here last year, we, last time, I should say, I found that there were a lot of people who said, I'm really concerned about what's going on now. I'm not quite sure what to do. It's not everyone, but a number of people had that. And so what I invited last time was to reflect every day, five or 10 minutes, what's the way that I want to respond to harm being done in the world? You know, it could be, Various ways that you do that. You know, again, just to see what draws you. You know, remembering that uh, famous passage I like to quote from Howard Thurman, who said when he was close to 80 years old in response to a young person who said, what should I do? And he said, uh, interestingly for an activist, he said, don't ask what the world needs Rather, ask what makes you come alive because what the world needs is people who have come alive, right? So that can be a way of answering that last question. So I wanted to invite, and I think we, do we have the microphone? Anyone want to share an insight or a question that came from the last week of practicing this? I'll take maybe two or three, just a few. Anyone want to share something that you learned or that a question came up? Okay. Yeah, Pam. I thought I would work with right speech. Yeah. And I immediately was presented with uh, not taking that which is not given. Yeah. In the grocery store, I was undercharged. And what to do? Yeah the line was long in Safeway, they don't have enough checkout, and what to do. And I was really surprised that that came up right away. Yeah, great. So being aware of the precepts heightened, being aware of one precept heightened awareness of the others. And at least, see, the, the core is really, once you can inquire, saying, what's going on, should I do this? I would say it's 80 or 90% of the practice is done. Because again, we we go around the day so much automatic, right? Another another um, learning insight question, please, that may have come up from the last week. Not so much about anything I've been talking about, but something from the last week. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I wasn't here last week, but I had a question in an uh, company environment. If you have to fire somebody. How would you do it with skillful speech and if they were underperforming? Yeah, skillful speech and... No, if they were also underperforming and... They're underperforming. And yeah, let me, let, me, um, let me give a brief answer and maybe come back. Here I'm especially looking for reports, but um, I think a lot would depend on the context and the relationship. Skillful speech depends on that. And my quick answer would be 
um, mostly to reflect on it. <laughs> you know, if you've been in Buddhist settings, you know that when you ask a question, you're extremely likely to get the question turned back to you. So, um, but I think it actually makes sense. It would be the, like inquire. And I would say that we want to see, is there a way that I can, this is maybe a good quick answer, that the guidelines for skillful speech are to be truthful, helpful, come from a warm heart, and have good timing. Can I have all four together and speak about firing someone? That would be a way to reflect on it. Okay, good. So any other report from last week, from practicing? Um, well, two things. One was I immediately noticed it driving. Yeah. You know, just, just even just how I felt. Yeah. You know, just like, oh, that person just cut me off. Okay. Yeah. It's fine. You know, so it was, it, it, I mean, they didn't know what I was thinking, but it was just for myself. Yeah. Um, but the other part of it that I struggle with is um, the more social involvement because yeah. one of the things you had said was spend 10 minutes a day. Yeah. If you, you know, if you, and I do still get stuck in the kind of overwhelm or despair, how to balance that. Yeah. And it really does feel related to the non-harming because, you know, everything around me that I feel despair about has. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe we can come back to that issue of overwhelm because that's how many people feel that at times. Okay. I think it's, it's quite common. Uh, and so I think one has to take care of that. Uh, but, but yeah, g- driving is a great area to practice this. And again, I very much think of the training principle that when we really develop things in ways that are accessible to us, developing non-harming in everyday ways, it helps us to do it in the bigger ways, right? So, yeah, just familiarize yourself. And so you might ask uh, yourself, uh, which of those five types of practice seem to call to me. And again, there are practices that one can do to work with any sense of overwhelm, despair, being caught in some negative narrative, etc. Maybe we'll come back to that. Maybe one more? Anyone? Okay. Yeah. I, um, I'm in a work situation that I want to get out of and hearing uh, what was said last week and thinking about it during the week, it allowed me to be more patient and like I want to be finished yesterday but I have to go through the steps to get someone else in place to help these people and so it it just kind of made me feel like well I can do this I can you know continue to do what yeah. I no longer want to do but feel responsible to do and so it it was a relief to very very interesting if I can if I can sort of reframe it a little bit, that what you're reporting was that a lot of you just wants to be gone, right? And when you brought the sense of practice in, you took it somewhat out of a more self-centered perspective. Is that accurate? Yes. Yeah. And you brought it to a place where, yes, it's important for me to move out, but I think I can actually move out in a way that's also responsible caring maybe for the organization, etc. And so there, there are important points there. Of course, part of what we see when we look at times when we may be doing something which is harmful is we may see self-centeredness or we may see some kind of reactivity, grasping, pushing away compulsively. And that's part of what we look at when we look at that. So thank you. Yes, I realized too that I was the one who... I took responsibility for my part in being still involved yeah. at this point. Yeah. And so that it's kind very, of... Very, very significant. Okay, so now, those five are really good starting point and something that one could work with profitably for 10 or 20 years. <laughs> so here are 10 ways of deepening that practice. And again, I'm going to mention 10, and I want you just to listen maybe for 
whatever one or two that resonate with you. And you may want to go back to the, the five that I mentioned. And some of these are really continuations of the five. So I'm going to mention four that have to do with our more individual practice. I think three that have to do with our interpersonal practice of non-harming and four that have to do with our social practice of non-harming, our more collective practice. So I'll organize it like that. So number one, number one, stay with the practices that I've just mentioned for one or two months. In other words, keep it going longer. You do practices like that for one or two months, you know, to speak the language of the neurosciences, it gets, you build neural pathways. And it's there. You do this for a month or two, and this kind of practice will just be there in a way that is quite accessible and will be very likely to stay with you in a much uh, more stable and enduring way than if you just hear the talk, right? That actually follow it for a sustained period of time can be really significant. That's number one. Number two, um, look at any ways that you might be harming yourself and try to work on ways to both see that and respond to that. Are there ways that I'm actually harming myself? Could be in a lot of different ways. There's a very uh, powerful passage from the Buddha where he says, one who loves oneself will not harm another. We probably could say one who loves oneself will not harm oneself. But he says in that passage, one who loves oneself will not harm another. Probably he means will not intentionally harm another. You know, that's a very powerful passage. So it points to, again, this interrelationship of not acting to harm as much as one can, but also cultivating kindness, love, warmth. And so part of looking at how one tends to harm oneself is doing a lot of practice of loving kindness or compassion taking as a daily practice. Just five or ten minutes a day will have a big impact for loving kindness. And I think not all of you, how many of you know well the loving kindness practice? And for how many of you would it be new to do that? Okay, so, so some. So there are ways of, uh, sometimes I teach that here, but in there are ways of getting uh, instructions online or in books. So that kind of practice can be very, very powerful. So we can see how a lack of love can lead to, a lack of love of oneself can lead to harming both oneself and others. And I think that's actually a very powerful tool on the social level as well. Because so much of harming, you know, I, I once, you know, did some teaching on the roots of violence and there was a very strong correlation between those who, this was about youth violence, those who commit violence, very strong correlation, violence had been done to them. Right? And so you have a very, very strong correlation there. And so if there can be a way, one way to work with diminishing violence is to really, in various ways, make possible self-love. Again, it's not just an individual matter, but it's a social matter. I could say a lot more there. Number three, this is related. Every day, have a heart practice that you do. And by heart practice, I mean loving kindness, compassion, could be gratitude, forgiveness, joy, empathy, perhaps. Have ways of practicing that every day. And this can make a huge difference in terms of non-harming, again, very much related to the second, that cultivating care will lead to diminishing non-harming in all sorts of ways. Number four, do more study of the ethical guidelines. Read books. There's a, Thich Nhat Hanh has a very good book called For a Future to be Possible, which is a full book on the ethical precepts. And you can read their other books. I think in my reading list, I have five or six books mentioned just on ethical practice. That's number four. Okay, number five through seven, interpersonal, different ways of practicing. 
Here they are. <clears throat> Bring a commitment to non-harming and practices of non-harming into your family, your group, or your work environment. And that can occur in a lot of different ways. One way is having explicit agreements at a family level, at a group level, at a work level that bring non-harming very explicitly into the situation. You know, in, when I've done um, training groups, I did training groups for a lot of years for people connecting inner work with social service and social change. And we would have these groups and we would... Um, the first thing that we did, we would have a weekend together and we would develop uh, agreed-upon guidelines for the group. And we would have 10 or 15 guidelines. A lot of them were about respect and care, at least for others in the group. Right? So that's something one can do in a workplace, in a family. And uh, you know, one of the workplaces I was in, they were having, the people were having communication difficulties and I was part of a committee to look into it. And I gave the Buddhist uh, speech guidelines and the whole organization agreed to follow them. And so every time we had a meeting, I was asked to bring up these guidelines. They were written on a, on a marker board right at the front of our meeting room. Everyone followed them. People sometimes bring these guidelines online to online groups, right? You can do that. It's a significant way of decreasing non-harming by making things explicit. Number six, more generally, work with skillful speech. Again, this is a whole area. You know, I teach retreats and daylongs, but to really focus on skillful speech can be a very powerful way of bringing non-harming into especially one's relationships. This is from the end of the uh, 19th century, Patril Rinpoche from the Tibetan tradition. Everything you say with your mouth or do with your hands, instead of being harmful to others, should be straightforward and kind. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, the, the seventh through the tenth are more on a social level, bringing non-harming to a social level. Very significant way to... Um, have there be less harming in the world is to switch to a plant-based diet. Maybe we can even focus on that as a whole. There's a, there's a book which is quite powerful. Some of you may know, I brought it here. It's called Drawdown. Subtitled, The Most Comprehensive Plan Ever Proposed to Reverse Global Warming. And it gives a hundred different ways to reduce global warming essentially pointing to the fact that we know exactly what to do to deal with the problem. But there's not political will, and obviously there's holding on and greed by organizations which make profit. And guess what, um, guess what number four is? The fourth most powerful way to intervene with global warming is switching to a plant-based diet. And I thought I'd read just a little bit from, from this. The most comprehensive assessments about the impact on global warming by raising livestock is that direct and indirect emissions account for more than 50% of greenhouse gases. More than 50%. If cattle were their own nation, they would be the world's third largest emitters of greenhouse gases. And so, and so switching to a plant-based diet is, of course, very impactful in causing less harm to the animals that many of us eat. And of course, the conditions for virtually, for almost all of the raising of animals are horrendous. You probably know that, right? They're so horrendous that the animals have to be pumped full of um, antibiotics, a lot of which we ingest which are quite harmful, because if they didn't, they would die from the diseases, from the bad conditions. And so taking on a plant-based diet has a big impact in terms of both the 
non-harming of the other animals, and also in terms of, of what many of us may not know in terms of climate issues. That's number seven. Number eight, look for your own attitudes that contribute to various forms of systemic suffering. Look at your own attitudes in terms of race, gender issues, all the different ways that there's systemic oppression that we know about. You know, race, gender, age, religion, all sorts of things. Appearances, disability. Could probably mention 10 or 20 of those, right? And one of the things that we can do is deliberately look at your attitudes in some areas where you may be causing harm. You know, that we all take in the messages of the society. You know, actually, I was reading a book called uh, Blindside or Blindspot, which is by the people who developed the implicit uh, bias work. And they said, actually, the, the, the bias, which is the most widespread, is bias against elderly people. Not necessarily causing the most harm and damage, but it's the most widespread, you know. And there are ways, you know, there are ways of working with this. One can, you know, especially is helpful to be in groups. You know, I've been in several groups uh, where we've looked over a number of years at issues of whiteness, race, and Buddhist practice. It's very helpful to be in these groups where you can really look at what's there in one's own mind as much as possible without shame and blame, right? To see what's there. This is a fundamental way to uh, go more deeply into non-harming. Another way, this is the ninth of 10. We're getting there. The ninth is to actually study the nonviolence of Gandhi, King, Dorothy Day, and others more fully. Really see what there is. There's a very close um, connection between Buddhist practice and the nonviolence you see there, partly because they share origins in the Indian teaching of ahimsa, which many of you know, non, that's really the Indian term for non-harming. And so they're common roots, and you can see that uh, there's a very deep connection. And I've taught here sometimes with my colleague uh, Kazu Haga. We've taught day-longs and retreats sometimes on the the connection particularly between Buddhist practice and the nonviolence of King Gandhi and others. It's a very powerful area. Study it. You know, some of our material from our retreats is online and available. Very powerful area. From the Buddha, hatred never ends through hatred. By love alone does it end. This is an ancient truth. 2,600 years ago, from, from Dr. King, the means must be as pure as the ends. The end represents the means and process and the ideal in the making. One seeks to defeat the unjust system rather than the individuals who are caught in the system. There are a lot of complexities of nonviolence and subtleties, but studying that further can be a very powerful way of deepening. And then last, commit yourself to one way of working to reduce social harm and stay with it. See what calls you. Maybe you have some time, maybe you devote three hours a week Maybe you take on climate issues or some other issue that you, in your mind, reduces harm. Take it on, commit to it. Commit to one, not to do too much. And of course, again, as came up in the questions, there's a whole set of things we have to do to say best to stay balanced and sustainable over the long haul, right? You know, just one word, uh, I think particularly some of the work of Joanna Macy has been really, really helpful for working with the deep um, sense of stuckness or the the emotions that can be there. Despair, bitterness, and so forth that can easily, you know, hopelessness that can easily be there. Yeah. I think of the... uh, an interview which I've occasionally read here from Vandana Shiva. She says, whatever I do... 
I vow not to be stuck in hopelessness. So think of which of those 10 or which of those earlier ones call you. See what's there. And again, I think we can do that in the context of the 4th of July. So I thought I'd close just by reading a few passages from the 4th of July and make connections between the 4th of July and our own practice. So first, because I think that in a way, again, we're in this time of, we might say, ethical or moral crisis where something is really called from us who see that harm is being done. So from 1776, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And then it goes on to say that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. I'll keep the sexist language in, okay. Deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it and to institute new government laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. And then uh, from Dr. King, "In in the real sense, America is essentially a dream a dream as yet unfulfilled. This is 1961. It is a dream of a land where people of all races, all nationalities, and all creeds can live together as brothers and sisters. The substance of the dream is expressed in these sublime words, words lifted to cosmic proportions. Then he actually quotes the Declaration of Independence. And then to end, um, also from 1961, <clears throat> Gary Snyder, Buddhist poet. He's talking about the the need to really connect the essence of Buddhist practice with the the best of the Western traditions of um, social revolution, social uplift. This is what he says. The mercy of the West has been social revolution The mercy of the East has been individual insight into the basic self-void. We need both. They are both contained in the traditional three aspects of the Dharma path, wisdom, meditation, and morality, or ethics. Remember that? Wisdom is intuitive knowledge of the mind of love and clarity that lies beneath one's own ego-driven anxieties and aggressions. Meditation is going into the mind to see this for yourself, over and over again, until it becomes the mind you live in. Morality is bringing it back out in the way you live, through personal example and responsible action, ultimately towards the community or sangha of all beings. Happy 4th of July. Thank you for your attention. We have some time if there are any thoughts, questions reflections of any kind. We're we're using the microphone. Yes, hello. Yeah, keep it close to your mouth. Hearing your inspiring words, I, I feel myself trying to reach out and grasp them and, and sort of find in myself a determination to try something. Yeah. Something in me is suspicious of that impulse. Yeah. Because it seems to me, especially when we're being quiet together, I'm I'm reminded that it's, I need to remember there, but for the grace of God, go I. Yeah. I'm really no different. Yeah. Than people that I might perceive to be responsible for things that I don't agree with. So yeah. How how to find? I don't know. The term remorse of conscience has been used. How, yeah. How to include 
that as as a way to yeah. call a finer quality of feeling in myself. Yeah. So what comes to mind maybe are, th- are three things in response. One is great that you're actually looking at what's there in your mind and noticing that grasping. Um, that's really uh, the crux of this, I think, as Parley mentioned in relation to your um, comment earlier, was that really to keep looking, keep inquiring. That's the spirit of our practice, keep seeing what's there. Secondly, I think it's um, helpful, but it also be, can, can be confusing to say that I'm the same as those who I think are responsible. I think I would say yes and no. Yes, uh, you're, we're all complicit in certain ways, and there are differences. I think it's important to bear both in mind. And so the, the fact of some degree of complicity helps us not fully separate ourselves from the others. But noticing that there are differences helps us to act. That's one way to say it. And so thirdly, I would say if, there, you, know, if you notice yourself grasping something, I think that can sometimes be okay. Mostly just listen in, to that quiet voice that says, this is what calls me. Either that, you know, and again, I mentioned a lot of things. I would suggest just listen for the one or two things which call you. Not to, and not to try to do them all or, or grasp too much. But saying, I really like this. Oh, it's exciting. And then grasping a little bit. It's okay. Okay. Thanks. Thank you. First of all, I want to thank you for today. It was just what I needed. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and my question is um, about working with judgment. As you know, we look, I look at these. Um, to me, it seems that all of them are very useful as long as I stay compassionate. Mm hmm. But I don't always. Yeah. I mean, getting hung up in right, wrong. Yeah. And have to, instead of trust. Just, would you open that up a little bit? Or? Um, yes. Okay. Um, thank you. Again, it's, uh, I think it's getting at a good question, or it is a good question, that... Um, we notice ourselves not compassionate all the time. And again, that's the nature of this practice, that we, whether we're focusing on non-harming or whether focusing on any other aspect of practice, that we fall out of mindfulness, we're caught by greed, hatred, and delusion, and so forth. And the essence of practice is not to get rid of those, but it's to find a workable way to train. And so I think always think that this session here in a protected environment, relatively protected, is training. We keep training, and then we go out and we practice as best we can, and we're always going to find ourselves falling short at times. And not being compassionate is part of that, or being self-centered is part of that. And so if you find that to be an area that you really want to strongly develop in, take compassion practice, loving-kindness practice as a way to... Uh, something to do more of. You see what calls you. Or it could be that's what you do for a period of time. In the long run, we really, you know, and, and by the way, we're in this for the long run. <laughs> okay. That in the long run, we may have, you know, a period of six months where I really am drawn to compassion practice. Six months where I'm drawn to mindfulness and so forth. And that's, that's, a, that's not a bad way to practice, right? And so, and then... Um, I think the, you know, being ethical is about, uh, is about right and wrong. You know? and, but it's tricky because we can be very judgmental. So that's, you know, we could take a next half hour looking into that one. It's, it's tricky. But the, if I would give a short response, it would be to say that the, um, you know, We use, we use ethics as a kind of north star. So non-harming is saying it's right not to harm, it's wrong to harm. 
Now, we may not use that language, or that language might be not helpful for us. We might say, I commit to not harming, and so forth. But there is, uh, it's uh, tricky in our culture because uh, uh, sometimes we, um, well, we see how easy it is to be judgmental, self-righteous, etc. That's not what's being pointed to. And so that, that could be there when we get overly attached to the sense of non-harming. And we could actually recognize that being judgmental and self-righteous can be a form of harming. Right? That, another way of saying that is we can get attached to everything. We can get attached to mindfulness, wisdom, ethics, meditation, spirit rock, etc., I, you know, I think that's obvious. I remember I had one friend who used to tell me, he, he used to yell at his kids, can't you see I'm meditating? <laughs> okay. So we want to look at that. So I think that's the, again, it could be a longer discussion, but that's the, the way in. Yeah. yeah. That was what I was, yeah, am most concerned with. Yeah. yeah. Other time for maybe one or two more? Yeah. Um, not necessarily di- related, I mean, not directly related to non-harming, but um, I hear a lot about freedom from suffering. Yeah. And and yet I feel like the human experience has pain. Yeah. So I, I'm right now ruminating about yeah. what's the difference between suffering and pain and love to kind of hear how you see it. Yeah. Well, those who've come here more than a few times know that this is one of my favorite areas to explore and teach on, right? That it's, it's actually fundamental. I think there's a lot of confusion, actually, about this and pr- precisely how you're, uh, in the way you're pointing. And so, short version would be that, um, and it's actually even confusing in the old text. It's confusing in the translations. Uh, generally, the way I work with it is, is by saying that what the Buddha was pointing to was he was pointing uh, not to end pain, meaning the presence of the unpleasant. I think we have to really define words precisely. By pain, we can talk about the presence of the unpleasant and point to physical pain, emotional pain, interpersonal pain, etc., social pain. And what's being, what we're, what we're ending it's not so much pain in that sense, but we're ending reactivity towards the pain. And I, I think I have to tell the famous teaching, which is the teaching called the teaching of the two arrows. And the Buddha said that there are two arrows, and this is, expresses this quite clearly. There are two arrows. Everyone, he, his question was, how does a practitioner differ from a non-practitioner? Everyone at times experiences pain in the sense of the unpleasant. He said, we all at times have pain. And we, we might say that we sometimes have physical pain, emotional pain, pain about interpersonal social situations. Everyone is the same in that way. He says he, that's like being shot by an arrow, the first arrow. He says what a practitioner does is learn to be with what's painful skillfully and not shoot a second arrow, which is to react because of the presence of the pain. And he said, we can shoot that second arrow in all sorts of ways. You know, uh, you say something mean to me, I say something mean right back. That's shooting the second arrow. I receive harm from you, I give you back harm. That's shooting the second arrow. It kind of points to the essence of nonviolence. Um, I am not uh, uh, feeling well, I blame myself. Something difficult happens in work. I blame myself. I blame someone else. Those are all examples of shooting the second arrow. And so the practice points towards the possibility of being skillful with the first arrow and not shooting the second arrow. The second arrow, I like to use the term reactivity. Some people would make a technical distinction and say the first arrow is pain and the reaction to pain is suffering. That's a technical definition. 
And I don't, I don't do that because in ordinary English, pain and suffering are so closely seen together. So I don't go there. Some people do. Just so, so whenever you see the word suffering in Buddhist context, you have to... Um, I would, for me, I reframe it. <laughs> I rephrase it. Because it's, we have to be clear what they're talking about. And if you don't make that clear distinction, there's going to be confusion. Something like that clear distinction. And so, and it also points to a goal of practice that's clearer, easier to understand. The goal of practice, in terms of what people sometimes say, in terms of overcoming suffering, is actually ending reactivity. It's still a you know, very ambitious goal, but it's understandable. And we can see how it works in everyday life. We can see someone, you know, again, someone says something that I don't like. Do I snap back? Or do I have resources to respond in some way skillfully and compassionately? Not easy, but it's understandable what not shooting the second arrow means. It's understandable about that as a goal of practice. So that's how I would reframe it. Yeah, I like the parable. I think if someone explained... Oh, sorry. Yeah. I like the, the story. I think if someone said reactivity to, to pain, it would still would not be very clear. A little bit abstract. Because, you know, yeah. I'm going to flinch when you hit me. That's, that's reacting to pain. You know? yeah. And that's a natural response. Yeah. If I make meaning, right, that yeah. says, oh, you hit me because I'm bad, then I am shooting the second arrow. But yeah. I feel like reacting to pain, you know, from like a very body-based thing yeah. is, is something we do. Like the body... Yeah, I think, I think you're right. See, it's even... It's a lot more subtle than I was even giving because I'm using reactivity, meaning something that's avoidable. Yeah. I'm giving a kind of, again, kind of technical yeah, definition. Yeah. Yeah. That, and particularly one that um, sort of takes the original pain and keeps it going. Just flinching, just flinching when something happens doesn't necessarily do that. Right, right. Uh, but there, you know, but if I uh, if I always, you know, again, it's there are subtleties there. But I think I think you're pointing to one of them. But I, but if you think of reactivity, one phrase I like to use is we pass on the pain to either ourselves or others. So reactivity would be more um, more obvious at the mental emotional level when I judge someone, I judge myself, I say something. That's more obvious reactivity, right? What I do physically, we'd have to actually go into some depth to distinguish what is normal reaction from what is a reaction which is actually causing harm. And there are some of those, right? I mean, we, do, we can do that. Okay, thank you. So it's a, thank you for bringing in that subtlety. But it's, yeah, it's, um, you can see how that teaching, which is a wisdom teaching, about the way the mind works really connects with non-harming, right? Very, very closely. And you can, you know, I, I think of that teaching of the two arrows as not in essence different from what was offered by Gandhi or King or Dorothy Day. Pretty much the same thing. We have received pain. We will not, in an automatic way, pass on the pain, you know, but we will act, right? We will be responsive and responsible, so that's, so I think, but the core teaching is the same. That's, I think, the inner unity of Buddhist practice and approaches to non-harming that are, that we, that come from traditions of non-violence. So, okay. So thank you. Um, let me close. Uh, just take a moment and see where your own minds and hearts go in terms of what we've explored today. Is there some way, maybe one of those ways of practicing, one of the ways of deepening, maybe one of them calls for you, something you might want to do in the next week? How many would like to do some continued practice in this area in the next week? Okay, great. Um, so do that. And then again, we can come back. If you're, if you're here, we can come back and share. But see what that practice is. Again, it can be entirely something you keep to yourself. What is a, what is a way that appeals to you to keep this going?
Then we close in a traditional way, and I'll have my hands like this. If you want to, you can join. If not, it's okay. We end with the traditional practice called the Dedication of Merit, which is an intention practice in which we remember that although we very much do these practices and work with these teachings to benefit ourselves, we also do it for the benefit of others. Ultimately, the horizon is that we practice for the benefit of all beings. And we always remember that all beings includes ourselves. And so we offer the benefits of our morning, our session, to all beings, which includes us. So thank you. Happy 4th of July and to be continued. (laughs) Thank you.